Good morning. I want to begin with, thank you, uh, with a question, what is justice? What is justice? We might initially think it's quite straightforward. You commit a crime, uh, you're found guilty, you take the appropriate punishment. But sometimes it gets a little trickier. On Wednesday, Andrew Chan and Murian Sukumaran were executed by a firing squad in Indonesia for their role in leading a drug trafficking ring. Was that justice? Was the shooting of these two men justice? It was according to the law of the land in which they carried out their crimes and where they were arrested and tried. And yet many people protested on the grounds that these two men had reformed while they were in prison. They'd been rehabilitated, they would say, since their conviction in 2006. Whatever we think, we have to at least acknowledge that justice is not always straightforward. A key foundation of justice, though, is the guilty are condemned. If justice is to be served, then the guilty must be punished. We ought then to experience some sense of amazement, or perhaps initially just confusion, when we read verses like the one we began with this morning, or like the opening sentence of Romans chapter 8, uh, in the same, same chapter, the same part of the Bible in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What? How could that be? Where is the justice in that? The first few chapters of the same letter make it so clear that we all stand guilty before God. We might not have smuggled drugs. We might not have been responsible for wrecking many people's lives. But we are all guilty of the rejection of God in our hearts. Rejection of God as God and rebelling against him in our outward lives. And if you're not convinced of that, then later on, please do read the first three chapters of of Romans. How then could it possibly be said, as it is here, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, the letter goes on to say that God did something to make this possible. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. That is to say that God sent his son as a human so that he could be condemned as a human, taking the full condemnation that all who are in him deserve. And it's not the case that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has turned a blind eye or because God has bent the rules or because God has corrupted justice. No, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has been condemned in their place on their behalf. Justice has been perfectly upheld. Punishment, full punishment, has been paid. It's not even strictly true that the guilty go free. Although we perhaps often talk and think like that, and that's okay. But the problem with that sentence is that in God's sight, we are no longer guilty. If we were, we would not be free. We would still be condemned. The righteous requirement of the law 
has been met in us. Not only did Jesus take our punishment, we've been given his righteousness. God accepts us as fully righteous in him. And this is the main theme of the whole letter to the Romans. It's the main theme it's written to address. The great news that God has made a way for us to be righteous, to be declared just before him. And this theme is developed in the first of our verses that we're looking at this morning. We read it earlier, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Again, the case is made that there is no condemnation. There is no one to condemn. And if there is no one to condemn, then there is no condemnation. There's a story recorded in John's Gospel uh, in chapter 8. It, it's likely thought that it probably wasn't originally in John's Gospel. So if you, if you turn to it and have a look, um, I don't know what the page number is. I'll just tell you, unless someone shouts it out first. Thank you, 1074. Uh, if you turn and have a look at John chapter 8, in the first 11 verses, you'll see that it's kind of marked as, as slightly separate. It probably wasn't originally in John. It, it's likely that it's true. It's thought to be true. It's thought to be that it happened. But it's not, um, uh, yeah, it's not part of the original manuscript as far as we're aware. But anyway, this is a really helpful story for uh, this morning's passage. And this story is about uh, uh, Jesus being in the temple courts and the people gathered around and he sat down to teach them. And then, and then suddenly there's this interruption as the teachers of the law and the Pharisees drag in this woman, kicking, pushing her in, drag in this woman who they've caught in adultery. Don't know where the man is. It takes two people to commit adultery. Maybe he was quicker, maybe he ran away before they got to them, maybe they just didn't care because he was a man and they just wanted to punish the woman. But they drag this woman in and they make a stand before everyone and they say to Jesus, to, to, to trap him, this is what they're doing, they're trying to trap Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women, that is kill them by throwing stones at them. Now what do you say? And they wanted to trap Jesus. Would he, would he go along with, with what Moses said in the law? Would he go along with what their society... They probably didn't do this that much anymore by then. Would he go along with what the society thought was acceptable? But what Jesus does is really interesting. He bends down, starts to write something on the ground with his finger. We don't know what that is. But when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. But at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. They knew they weren't innocent. They knew they couldn't condemn. So off they went. And what you have left is this woman who is guilty. She's just been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus. What happens? Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. 
Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. This is the gospel. The Son has come, John chapter 3 says, not to, not to condemn, but to save the lost. Neither do I condemn you. And if Jesus doesn't condemn this woman, there is no condemnation. Romans 8, this verse is talking about us being in Christ Jesus. If there is no one to condemn, there is no condemnation. And in these verses that we've read in Romans 8, the, the absence of condemnation, as we've said, is, is tied to the death of Jesus, Christ Jesus who died. But here in verse 34, the theme of Romans 8, the theme is developed further. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Christ who liberates us from condemnation did not only die. After dying in our place, he was raised to life. And after being raised to life, he returned to the place of honor at his father's side, as we saw last week. And get this, and this is the point, he is there now, alive, at the place of honor with his father, interceding for us. The point is that Jesus didn't just die for us and leave it there. There is something more. He's alive now and interceding for us before the Father. Okay, what does, what does that mean? What does interceding mean? Eight people were actually executed by the firing squad on Wednesday. But there was a ninth person. Nine people faced the death penalty. But the ninth was not executed. Why? Mary Jane Veloso from the Philippines had also been taken to the prison island to be executed after numerous unsuccessful appeals, including two by the Philippine government. Her life was over, but she had a powerful intercessor. The president of the Philippines, her president, met with the president of Indonesia and interceded for her. President Aquino, on the left of this slide, pleaded with the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, and reasoned Mary Jane Veloso's innocence. And on the day she was due to be executed, the Indonesian government postponed her execution as a result of her president's intercession. Now, there are some important differences here, but it's a great example of intercession. Someone pleading with one person on behalf of another, making an approach on behalf of someone. And as we go through, we'll see some of the ways in which the intercession of Christ differs. We were guilty. It's argued that Mary was innocent, but we were guilty. But we are innocent. We're justified. We're declared righteous. We've been forgiven. We've been made innocent. And it's not like God is the father who needs talking around like the Indonesian president needed to be talked around into letting her off. That's not how it is. But we'll see, we'll see some of those differences as we go through. So let's look at the second of our two passages, which will help us to unpack this a bit further. So we're moving to Hebrews now. We looked at Hebrews a bit last week as well. Um, and we're going to look, begin in chapter 4 of Hebrews on page 1203. And we're reading verses 14 to 16, although we're not going there just yet. But to understand this passage, we need to understand what a priest was. As priests were very familiar concept to the Hebrews, whom this letter was written, today we're not so familiar with the idea, or if we have heard of the word, we don't really know 
what it means. We might use it in different ways. Um, I was quite amused the other week. Someone um, said to me, oh, so-and-so says, you're a priest. <laughs> um, so there we go. Uh, but I'm not like the priest in, in Hebrews 4 or 7. I'm not a priest. So we're, we're not, we, we kind of use the word in different ways. But the Hebrew role, understanding of the role of priest, is very clearly seen in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And Alison explained some of this last week. But essentially a priest was someone who would, who would represent people to God, who would bring the offering to, to God for people's sin, who would bring people into the presence of God symbolically. You had the kind of role of a prophet who would bring God's word to the people, and you had the role of a priest who would bring people to God. This is kind of the role, and we'll see a bit more of what goes on as we go through. But uh, So have a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Therefore, at the beginning of these verses, is most likely referring back to chapter 2, where the writer explains that since those who Jesus saves have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that, Hebrews 2 says, by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, for this reason, Hebrews 2 says, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now chapter 2 is concerned with Jesus' ability to offer himself as a human substitute, a human taking our place. But chapter 4 takes this further. Not only did the son take up a human body and offer himself for us, but we still now have a great high priest who is risen and who has ascended now into heaven, into the Father's presence. How often do you think about what Jesus did after the cross? What is Jesus doing today? Of course it's right to celebrate that on the cross it was finished. As we saw so wonderfully last week, he made purification for sin. He sat down. It's finished. That was complete. But what about now? Is Jesus just kind of floating around on fluffy clouds and accepting the music of angels with big gold harps? Well, get this. Follow the steps of the earthly high priest. And then follow the steps of Jesus and worship in your heart. This is the earthly high priest. Once a year, particularly uh, Hebrews draws this out, on the day of atonement. I'll say what that is in a moment. The earthly high priest made an offering. He sacrificed a bull, a ram, a couple of goats, a ram, some fragrant incense he burns. And armed with all these sacrifices... And also he had some special holy underpants. You can read about those in Leviticus 16 if you don't believe me. But he had all his sacrifices and his special holy underpants. The high priest could enter 
the most holy place behind the curtain. The place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And he would take the blood of the sacrificed animals into God's presence and he'd sprinkle a special box which symbolised God's presence. And by taking the sacrifice into God's presence in this way, the high priest made atonement for himself, for his household and for the whole community of Israel. That is to say, their sin was covered over, atoned for. They were cleansed from all their sin. But now, Hebrews points out to us, now we have a great high priest who goes not behind a curtain in a tent or a temple, but who goes into heaven itself. A high priest who has ascended to the very throne of God. And this great high priest doesn't appear in heaven to present an offering of bulls or, or goats. Or This high priest offered himself and prevent, presents himself once and for all to make atonement for our sin. To cleanse his people from all their sins. And so as the earthly high priest would take this into the temple, into the tent... So Jesus has taken his offering of himself into God's presence itself. And this work he continues to do now. He's in the Father's presence, interceding now. I'm not sure we really appreciate the immense nature of this ongoing work of Jesus. Think of the, the earthly high priest again. Let's say he's a, he's a caring man. What do you think he thinks of when a member of the Israelite community opens up about their sin? Does he criticise them? Does he look down on them? Treat them as scum? He shouldn't do. He should be rather more understanding. You see, he's mindful of his own sin. He knows that before he presents an offering for the sin of the people, God requires him to present an offering for his own sin first. Far from despise them for their weakness. A good high priest sympathizes with the weakness of people who are weak, just like he is. Now look again at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. How often do we think of Jesus as generally happy with us when we're doing okay? Perhaps when we're serving at church or uh, reading our Bible and praying or if we sign up for the 3 a.m. slot then he's going to be really happy. Extra plug for you there. But, but when we sin, well then he frowns. Then he's disappointed. Then he looks down on us and thinks pathetic. She's fallen again. Why do I bother? Do you think of Jesus like that? But, and this could transform your life, that is not a biblical view of Jesus. That is not the attitude of the Jesus who, when we fall, when we express our weakness, feels sympathy. A few verses later in chapter 5, the writer describes the earthly high priest as being able to deal gently 
with those who are ignorant and going astray, since they themselves are subject to weakness. If the high priest who is just a man with his own weakness, if he can deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, then how much more Jesus, the perfect son of God, full of grace and truth, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, how much more will this tender-hearted great high priest deal gently with us when we are ignorant, when we are going astray? Do you get this? In that moment, when you go astray, he feels sympathy for you. In that moment, when your anger flares up again inside you, he feels sympathy for you. In that moment, when you give in to lust, he feels sympathy for you. In that moment, when your jealousy takes control of your thoughts and your actions, he feels sympathy for you. In that moment, when you're embarrassed about being a follower of Jesus at school or work, he feels sympathy for you. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Praise God that we have a sympathetic High priest, a high priest who feels sympathy for our weakness. Yes, he did not sin. That's important. If he had sinned, he could no longer offer himself for us. That's important that he did not sin. But as far as you or I are concerned, he knows our weaknesses. He knows my weakness and he knows your weakness. He has been tempted as we have. He feels sympathy for you when you stumble, not contempt. His heart goes out to you, not recoils from you. With such a great gospel as this, the writer can go on to say, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Where are you today? Are you hiding? Are you keeping your distance? Hesitating to approach? He goes out to you. That's what he's doing today. Feeling sympathy. His ongoing work. Feeling sympathy for your weakness. The same son of God who goes out to humanity from the throne and takes on a human body and goes out to the weak and the despised, the outcasts, the sinners. The same son of God goes out to us today from the throne. Not physically, but his heart goes out to you. He sympathizes with you, not despises you. So let us with confidence approach this throne defined by such grace so that we may receive mercy and grace God's undeserved favour his kindness to those who deserve the opposite we have a sympathetic priest and finally our final passage is in chapter 7 a couple of pages over verses 23 to 25 and this chapter is all about Jesus being a permanent priest 
As we saw last week, Hebrews says again and again, Jesus is better. Chapter 7 is all about Jesus being a better priest of a better covenant. Just before our verses, Jesus is presented as one who's become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Unlike those priests, old priests of the old covenant, covenant is the, the kind of way God relates to his people, a promise that God makes with his people. Unlike those old priests of the old covenant, which, by the way, Hebrews says, is made obsolete by the arrival of this better priest who brings a better covenant. Hebrews says uh, that Psalm 110, this is quoted here, was spoken by God about Jesus. God said to him, you are a priest forever. And this is radically different to the old priests. Each of the old priests died, which had serious implications for their serving as priests. Their son would succeed them, but then sooner or later he would die. And then his son would succeed him, and then sooner or later he would die. One Jewish historian reckons there were 83 priests, high priests, until the temple fell in in AD 70 and temple worship finished. As our passage picks up in verse 23 of Hebrews 7, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Because Jesus lived forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus, the son of God, who has no beginning, has also no ending. He is eternal. He lives forever. And for me, that means he will be my sympathetic priest forever. There won't come a time when Jesus retires and people say, oh, well, he was a nice priest. It was rather encouraging to have him on our side, wasn't it? I wonder what the next guy will be like. That won't happen. You won't ever mess up and say to yourself, if only I'd committed that sin while Jesus was still around to intercede for me. I'm stuffed now. He's moved on. Jesus lives forever. He's a permanent priest. And so he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. He will bring them all through. He'll present them all clean, all spotless. And as we saw last week, Jesus has completed our salvation already. It is finished. He has done it. He has made purification for sin. He sat down. And this offering has been fully accepted by the Father. We're justified, declared righteous now. Jesus doesn't have to remind the Father of his sacrificial offering of himself on our behalf. Perhaps it's helpful to think of of Jesus' ongoing intercession in terms of helping those who are tempted. Providing mercy and grace to those who are tempted. Praying for us that we will stand. Perhaps he prays for us now like he prayed for Peter, that his faith may not fail. Perhaps he still prays the kind of things he prayed for in John chapter 17. And if you don't know what those are, then look at John chapter 17. Whatever, he is working now still to complete our salvation. And the application really is straightforward this morning. We, all of us, need to draw near 
to God. We all need to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For some of us, that will be for the first time. The way to receive this mercy, the way to secure the salvation of this great high priest is to draw near to God. It's the beginning of a personal relationship with God. It starts with speaking to him in prayer. And if you want to speak to someone about that, then come and chat to me or John or anyone you've seen around afterwards or ask the person next to you they might know. Um, or we have a, a Christianity Explored course starting next Monday. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say there's still space. I don't know if there is. But I'm sure we won't turn you away now. Can't do. So come and find out more. But others of us need to continue approaching God. Maybe we need renewed confidence in our hearts. Renewed confidence in his heart towards us. His sympathy, his mercy, his grace. We are encouraged this morning to hold firmly to the faith we profess. To get a grip, a tight grip on God's grace and hold on to it. Hold on to it through difficult seasons of life. Hold on to it through change, through battle, through confusion and loss. And hold on to it through joyful seasons of life, never drifting from drawing near to God by our sympathetic and permanent priest. There isn't really much better summary of these themes than the words of the song that we've got opportunity to sing together in response now. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin, the one who's sympathetic, who goes out to me. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's sing together.